Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Bryce Bongiovanni, your host, and today I'm talking to Erica Wortham, the author of the new book, Indigenous Media in Mexico, Culture, Community, and the State, out from Duke University Press. Wortham's book examines the history and social and cultural ramifications of indigenous media production, especially indigenous video, in the Mexican states of Oaxaca and Chiapas during the 1990s. Erica, I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, To start out with, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your academic background, and what got you interested in anthropology in general? Sure. Well, um, I'm a bicultural person, a bicultural scholar. Um, I grew up and trained in my field here in the United States, but my mother's from Mexico, and I spent a lot of youth, a lot of my youth in Mexico. Um, So I'm fully bilingual, and I consider myself you know, sort of standing in between both cultures and places, as it were. Um, and I came to anthropology as an undergraduate at Columbia University. I took, I think this is not an uncommon story where you sort of jump into a field you don't really know too much about, and all of a sudden everything fires off and you begin to understand things in a way that just makes a lot of sense. And for me, anthropology really helped me, cultural anthropology, right, really helped me kind of make sense of all the negotiating I'd done all my life between my very Anglo father and my Mexican mother. It just all kind of made sense in this very productive way. So I was totally hooked as a, as a sophomore at Columbia. And I went on to pursue um, graduate studies after a little bit of a break at, uh, at New York University. They had one of the better programs that combined cultural anthropology and some kind of media making. From an early period, I, I was interested in photography, you know, since high school, um, in sort of a journalistic type of photography, documentary photography. And while at Columbia, I would run, go downtown and take photography classes um, and then incorporate that into my studies. It wasn't really offered at the school, but I sort of managed to make it work. So when I applied to graduate school, I was looking for a program that had both. And there, there were a few at the time. There are more now. And, and NYU had a really good one. It was, it's called the, culture, uh, the Program in Culture and Media now, although then it was, I think, the Program in Ethnographic Filmmaking or something like that. So that's what drew me to NYU. Um, and anthropology had already been something I was, you know, very much committed to before then. Right. So what made you interested in this particular subject of indigenous media in Mexico? Um, well, indigenous media studies was just really taking shape when I started at NYU. Um, cultural anthropology as a discipline was coming out of this major moment of revision. Um, they, t- they called it at the time a crisis of representation when practitioners as well as subjects began to question the representational authority of anthropologists, right? This idea of who can speak for whom was really buzzing around everywhere and people were rethinking it. Whereas in the world of ethnographic filmmaking, those kind of questions had already been going on. Um, And a lot of people that were using filmmaking in their research basically began to hand the camera over 
and sort of see what, you know, what happens um, in, in the wake of that. Um, and one of the other big shifts that began to happen in anthropology you know, in this crisis period was that we that people began to realize you can't really consider these sort of traditional or small-scale cultures as if they were apart, you know, from sort of the larger world around them, somehow circumscribed and not a part of. And one of the things that changed is they began to look at media, right? Whereas before it was looked at the sort of thing that would taint a traditional portrait of a community, even though the televisions and the radios were there, sort of a, a big turnaround and they began to look at, well, what is the role of the television and what is the role of radio? And then also, you know, when they began to be producers of radio and producers of TV, then it became, it was possible to look at media making as a social practice. So that's, and that was all taking shape. Um, during my early years at um, at NYU, and because it combined this long-standing interest of mine in you know visual media, it was just sort of a, a natural. I gravitated towards it, and also I had been working at the National Museum of the American Indian in New York, in the Film and Video Center. There, I was um, brought on board to sort of build the Latin American portion of the collection as well as Latin American representation in the film festival that they do. So I was able to travel to Mexico and Bolivia, Peru, and, you know, these different places to participate in these indigenous film festivals. So that just sort of was also a perfect dissertation topic, and, and I, I went for it. So I began to look at Mexico because of my own relationship with Mexico. Um, it's, indigenous Mexico is not a part of Mexico that that I was familiar with. In fact, it was a bit of a culture shock for my family to, in Mexico to understand why I was taking an interest in indigenous people. So that was um, a, a sort of a learning curve for me, but one that, you know, I've been you know, all the better for it. And just briefly, I'd like to thank Ken Whisaker, my editor at Duke University Press. Ken stuck by me while I developed the book over several years, and it was really a great experience working with Duke. Right. So could you, could you give us some, some context of what time period you're working with here, where you're working, and what the, the basic players in, in the story that you tell are? Sure. Um, well, the time period is basically the 90s, um, and there was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we're, we're, it's a, it was a time of the quincentenary, right, 500 years post after, the, after colonization or after the conquest, which was a very tumultuous time that required a lot of rethinking about, the, you know, how we interpret the conquest itself as well as how indigenous people today fit into their nation states. Um, and Mexico was also going through a period of constitutional reform. That was um, that was pretty big. They they reformed one of the opening articles of their constitution that redefined Mexico as a pluricultural state, um, which was historic. Really, that they would recognize Indian people after you know. 200 years of basically de-Indianizing them. Right. That's a, that's a phrase from a Mexican scholar, Bonfil Mataya. Um, but also at the same time. And Mexico was undergoing important economic restructuring towards neoliberalism, so in preparation for NAFTA, right, the big trade uh, uh, trade agreement between um, 
in North America between U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And they also changed articles of the Constitution that had previously safeguarded communal land holdings, which was basic, which was sort of a basic resource for Indian people in Mexico. Uh, and so it was a big turn towards privatization. So at the same time that you have this recognition of their sort of the composition of Mexico as being Indian, you also have the economic restructuring to pull the rug out from under under the Indian populations, basically. So it was a time of a lot of interesting change. And then globally, you have the NGO sort of led development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for indigenous people in particular. Um, and you have the um, International Labor Organization and their conventions that had a lot to do with indigenous peoples, um, which they came close to recognizing the self-determination of Indian people. So it was sort of this confluence of a lot of changes that were really bringing the importance of of indigenous peoples of our hemisphere globally as well, but in particular our hemisphere into people's consciousnesses. Um, and this, and the video project in Mexico, I found it particularly interesting because um, they were sort of, they thought that they were kind of inventing this idea of, of indigenous video, even though, or indigenous media making, even though it had already been happening in different places, like in Australia and in Canada and Brazil. So it was a very kind of state, up, you know, top-down sort of project. Um, so I came in looking at it that way to look at, so, so how through media can we understand these renegotiation of relationships between Indian, the Indian population and in particular Indian communities with the state of Mexico? That was kind of the, the beginning of my series of questions. To begin with, you talk about the uh, emergence in Mexico of the idea of indigenous video, indigenous media. Um, and it's tied up, uh, interestingly enough, with the work of anthropologists and particularly with an organization, uh, the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, um, or INI, I-N-I. Um, and I wonder if you could, could tell us a little bit about the, the history of that organization, what its goal was in promoting indigenous video up to this point. Well, it, it was kind of a mixed bag of goals that I tried to decipher a little bit in how I tell the story of indigenous video in Mexico. Um, and by the way, I always like to make the point that um, when I say Vida Indigena was, in this case, was sort of a Mexican formation, it really exists all over Latin America. But in this particular case, because of the role that the state played in creating it, um, I can call it sort of a Mexican phenomenon. Right. But um, I just want to be careful with that. Not that I'm claiming that it's the only place it exists, but in any case, um, so the INI was created as an institution in about, I think, 1948, so post-revolutionary Mexico, where they're trying to, they, uh, scholars are have reimagined what it means to be Mexican, and, and they they have come up with this idea of el mexicano being an, a mestizo, right? A mestizo person of mixed blood heritage. Um, but what happens is that they they begin to um, create assimilation policies that try and bring the sort of marginalized communities, which are all, you know, mostly indigenous communities, um, into the fold of modern Mexico. And by and by this, they mean educating them and all, it, it, 
in sort of a national school system and also teaching them how to speak Spanish and Spanish only, preferably. It's the typical horrible situation where children are chastised for speaking their native languages and they have to speak in Spanish in the schools. And um, again, and this went on for decades and decades until through a very sort of critical crisis of their own, anthropologists began to realize this is not the right road to go down. We have to sort of trade in what we've been doing and begin to really um, – uh, devote Eni's resources to cultural revitalization, right? To preserving these cultures, not to try and change them. And it was a very systematic way of saying, you know, what what what's good, right? What's good in quotes about these these cultures? Well, what happened here is that they were folklorized, right? And their 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 manners of dressing and their dances and their 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 material production was celebrated as part of part of an ethnic market that became an important part of Mexico's tourist industry as well as its identity, but their sociopolitical aspects of their culture was squashed. Right, um, their own forms of communal government, language, and and social organization were, was not something that the government was interested in bringing along with the folkloric part. Um, and so that's, so Eni, in that whole process, there's a word in Mexico for it. It's called indigenismo. Indigenismo is the basic assimilation policy of Eni. Um, in 2004, um, with the entry of the first non um pre-president of Mexico, so, so the pre had been the reign, it's actually the party in power now, but had been the reigning party in Mexico for 70 years, lost for the first time, um, and INI was dissolved, and now it's known as the CDI, um, very similar kind of title, but it's about development of indigenous people, but a lot of the practices are the same. I think they've devoted more resources to infrastructure and less to these cultural programs. But um, so video comes in at a time when when there's a director of ENI who's really interested in making some big changes. You know, sort of the video program was called transference of audiovisual media, as in let's give audio media over to them, right? As well as the control of it, the power over the resources. And that lasted for a few years until the Zapatista uprising in 1994. Um, and they, you know, sort of retrenched and, and, and retreated in their sort of transformational kinds of, of um, policies. But that's the moment that the video program takes flight. But I try and explain um, how it happens in a very idiosyncratic manner with a group of teachers and, and video instructors that come from different places themselves. Some, you know, one was a professional editor. Some come with deep sort of social change commitments. Um, one was a, a, a filmmaking teacher. And so they come together and sort of teach what's going to be indigenous video. Um, and slowly that that... It becomes apparent that what they're also teaching is a whole program sort of for social change that's not overtly and clearly articulated at the beginning. And that's why I have that chapter at the end to provide a, a contrast for how the revolutionary media is from the very beginning thought of as a program for social change, whereas the ENI video was a little bit more about cultural rescate or rescue and cultural preservation, not so political. But given the historical context, it became very political. And one part of uh, when you go from talking about the institutional uh, dimension of indigenous video to how it was actually adopted by the indigenous people who were being trained, who were 
learning to use video or being brought into workshops to use video. And they themselves demonstrate a couple of different attitudes towards video, which you talk about in, in your sort of examination of some of the groups that either came out of or were developed in response to the INI's uh, video program. Um, okay. could, you, could you talk a little bit about those, uh, um, yeah, really the three groups you talk about as, as different examples of indigenous uh, uh, uses of video kind of outside of the government's purview or beyond the state's interests? Sure. Um, well, the, the, the primary group that I worked with, which is I talk about in that, in that middle chapter, is, is still one of the most important indigenous media producers in Mexico. They're called Ojo de Agua Comunicación, and they're in Oaxaca City. And I take their position or their description, or even I can call it a definition of indigenous video, sort of as a primary way to understand um, their work as media, but also sort of their larger position, because in fact they describe indigenous video as a postura, which is like a position or a stance, right? So it's it's described as kind of an oppositional media, like, you know, this is who we are and, and, and we're not the people that you see in commercial media or, you know, um, all these, in the, all these other avenues. Um, and then you have groups like the, uh, the Zapotec video shown group that, um, took a very anti-institutional stance from the beginning and wanted nothing to do with the kind of negotiated, um, independence or autonomy that, that these other groups were, were, were dealing with, right? Because Vida Indígena, as I describe it, came out of the state program, they had really nothing to do with it. So, but, but what they have in common is that they use the media to, um, as a tool for the communities to self-reflect. And in that process of self-reflection, they realize that sort of the, their idea of culture goes through this sort of objectification process, or at least visual objectification, so that then it's something that can be defended in a different way um, and maybe tor- more towards the outside, um, which is also a process that you see that other people have narrated in other places, that sort of this reflection leads to defense of, of culture, more defined sort of anthropological logically really um and then the uh the third group comunalidad sort of are very oriented towards music production and radio and they had a more regional kind of concept of trying to build you know sort of uh consolidate all these different zapotec communities in the sierra with through radio music and, and television production um, and they have a very prominent figure who's a well-known songwriter and performer in their group that still who's still around and still sort of is like a you know an anchor for their for their project. That that project is still still going on as well. So that their struggle was a struggle for radio. And Eni had since 1979 a very broad radio program. And in fact, I, I'd like to write more about the contrast between video and radio in, in my future work. Um, as I think there's, there's a lot there that, that is interesting to, to think about. So their, their avenue was more through radio, which, which is not unusual that a lot of these folks started with radio or incorporated some kind of radio into the video production process as well. Um, so there's, so you have this regional focus, you have this anti-institutional, we don't want anything to do with the government, let us develop our own idea. Um, and then you have Ojo de Agua that comes straight out of Eni's video center that they created in Oaxaca, but over the years had to slowly disentangle themselves 
from the government in order to be able to do what they wanted to do and not be tied down by all these sort of bureaucratic problems. Um, just as an aside, um, yeah. one thing that I, I noticed when I was reading this particular section of the book was that there's a, uh, a common problem that seems to face all of these indigenous groups is, is the simple problem of access to transmitters, not necessarily mm-hmm. the video equipment, but the ability to actually uh, disperse their video or their radio, as the case may be, to people. Um, and could you, you know, describe sort of what you learned about the, that sort of particular problem? Because I know, for example, in the case of the, uh, the Sean collective, uh, that you describe, they've had, uh, you know, very, very intermittent ability to actually disseminate their video in some cases, because they were very strongly opposed to being involved with the government in any way. Right. Well, it's, it, I think it actually continu- continues to be a, a big problem. And, and, I'll, and I'll talk later about the online archive I want to create, which addresses that problem. Because, for example, again, to go back to radio for a second, ENI has um, indigenous radio stations. I think there's like 20 of them all over the country. Um, but for their video program, they never thought through a distribution um, program. Right, um, which is kind of crazy considering the kind of resources they put into production. Not to have some kind of, you know, I don't know, community access TV channel or film festival circuit or something thought up, thought out for the dissemination. And I, I think one of the reasons why is that some of this video ended up being a little more compromising for the government than the radio programs um, generally were. But in any case. Um, there are all kinds of really interesting stories, like the story of, of Tummeeks. They there was an abandoned television transmitter, like by their by the secondary school, maybe a mile and a half down the road from the center of town. It had been there since the eighties. Um, one of the big commercial television stations had put it there as a rebroadcasting system, because you know Oaxaca is very mountainous, and we're talking fairly big mountains. So the signals were having trouble coming over the mountains into these communities, but they never really got it going. So it had been sitting there abandoned, and they thought, well, let's go check it out, and they did. And they scrambled up this incredibly high antenna, sitting you know on this hilltop, and plugged it in and got it going. It's it's pretty simple technology, really, um, and they already had the video production component of it because they had participated in Eni's video production workshop. So it was just sort of you know local resources, you, you know, reappropriating something that was basically you know techno waste sitting in their backyard. Um, but on, and then there's regional um, screenings, which take a lot of human resources to, to make happen. You know, we're talking sometimes driving for hours, walking for hours, putting projectors and screens and equipment on mules and getting into some remote communities to show some of this work. I mean, that might be, you know, maybe not the most common, but um, in order to distribute some of this work, it, it definitely, you know, is something that would need a lot more attention. Um, and was never very well contemplated in the in the program. They do it, you know, a lot of times just with using all kinds of their own resources. Um, and I and I narrate a bunch of that in the book. But it definitely continues to be a challenge for this work to be seen. And it's funny how sometimes it's easier to see it from where we are, right? At these international film festivals and that kind of thing, or in cities. But in for the for the constituents themselves. Sometimes they don't have as much access to it, which is kind of ironic. Tell us a little bit more about uh, about Tamix because I think that's the the most interesting of all the particular uh, uh, video related groups that you study, and they have a they have a somewhat 
unique position, both in, in what they're doing and also uh, sort of ethnically. So could you tell us a little bit more about them and their particular context? Sure. Um, well, I also spent the most time when I was doing my research in their village. I, I, um, I want, I chose in some cases I chose that because, um, cause they had the television broadcasting going on. And I thought that was particularly interesting that they were able to, you know, broadcast their work. So that's where I focus a lot of my personal time. Um, and it, it turned out to be very fruitful because we can move in from indigenous studies to critical indigenous studies in the sense that we're not just looking at, you know, wow, this is cool, this is going on, but looking at also how complex and problematic it is. So once you take this top-down government program that teaches people how to use video and plunk it in the communities and watch how it works and doesn't work, then you begin to see a whole other layer of, of how indigenous media, you know, how it works, so to speak. Um, and in this case, you have a group of individuals that were already very focused on cultural programs in their community. Um, these were folks that had gone outside their community to finish high school, and sometimes they got more education and, and were teachers, right? So they were involved in education. They were involved in trying to get people to, to think and react and, and appreciate, you know, their history and their culture. Um, and they started off with uh, just sort of community, like, races and programs for kids and all kinds of and things like that to um, doing the video workshop. And they were also doing radio as well for a, a, a nearby any radio station. They would record radio programs and send the tapes to the radio station and would broadcast in their area. Um, and so, and then they have the so sort of the fortuitous accident of finding the, the transmitter. And so they had, they were able to, I think the, the, the radius of their transmission was only about five kilometers, and it would bust through the signal of TV Azteca, which is a commercial radio station, uh, TV station that arrived in town. So people were watching their soap opera, and all of a sudden they see these two primary school teachers on the hilltop, like, you know, on their televisions in their, in their homes. So it was a very, uh, you know, interesting story that way. That happened in 1992 before I did my research, but... So when I got there, they were sort of at the end of a decade of producing media in the community, and there were all kinds of problems now because um, I think that when they taught, when they were taught about media production and video, um, it wasn't set up in a way that was going to be um, imbricated into the social life of the community very well. You know, as it should have been, I think, a little bit of a slower process where the community gets to understand what, what video production is because people wouldn't get the fact that they were getting these MacArthur Rockefeller um, fellowships to produce a video, which is a ton of money. And and it would go into a 20-minute video. It's like, where did everything go, right? They And, and still today, in their, when they reflect on their 10 years of media production, which they're doing now in, sort of in a documentary they're making, they, they still talk about that, about how it's not concrete, like restoring a chapel or building a new section of the road, right? They don't understand, they, they weren't able to make folks in their community understand how the resources were spent or how valuable it is to have these documents of their own history. Um, so all that was going on while, while I was there. Um, and actually I was there during the last year of their, of their television production, the transmitter ended up breaking down, but also the, the community authorities basically said, you know what, you guys are done. We, you know, I think their process wasn't as transparent as it should have been. And they sought to make it a part of community life, 
in these communities, you have fairly regimented and organized um, community service positions, um, and including sort of like the band, for example. The municipal band is part of these rotating responsibilities that the municipal authority has. And video could have possibly been brought in as another aspect of their cultural life, sort of their official cultural life. But it wasn't. Um, and when Eni created the program, they didn't think through that part of it, right? And so even though these videos represent sort of a, the collective of a community, a lot of times they're made by two or three people, right? And so associated with that is a lot of, um, you know, not unfamiliar kind of jealousies, right? Of, you know, how come you get these resources? And, and, and by the way, where are those resources? Um, and the rest of us don't, you know? So it wasn't really fleshed out in, in, in the community as well as it should have been, unfortunately. But what stands is an incredible archive of material that they have and that they're, they've just now started to digitize and they're creating a documentary of their, you know, decade of media production. Um, and, and it's really, do you, do you want to ask a different question or should I keep going? Um, well, I guess my, my question uh, <laughs> yeah. about that is looking at these, uh, when you describe some of the videos that they made, they seem to focus on on specific kind of either communal activities or cultural elements that are being presented as kind of integral to the culture of this particular village or of um, this particular ethnic group. And in this book, you're talking about a kind of video that is coming out of anthropological filmmaking. And it's being directed in primarily a, a documentary fashion by both the INI uh, mm-hmm. early on and then by indigenous filmmakers independently. And at the same time, you're also examining the effect of this filmmaking itself as a subject of anthropological uh, inquiry. And right. I, is what, what I was interested in there is, is uh, what is the, the, the significance of, of looking at these particular practices and why maybe have they not been so successful as you point out in garnering as much outside interest, especially not to say, say nothing of, of internal interest from the community um, mm-hmm. as they might've been. Well, that's, that's a, um, a, a big question in the sense that it's hard to really, I think it's hard to pin down exactly why. I mean, one, one clear problem is access to, you know, it's still a very, I was just talking to one of the Tamix guys um, who lives in France now over Skype, and he says, you know, video is still the patito feo, the ugly duckling of all these of all these arts. Um, but also, a lot of this work is looks really different than what people are used to seeing, um, and it needs a little bit of introduction, you know, to general audiences. Now, there is a very robust circuit of Native American film festivals at which, you know. This, these material play. Um, and so it's not totally unknown. And there are several websites also in Canada. There's a fantastic one, Isuma TV in none of it. Um, Iglulik. Anyway, and they have a lot of stuff from uh, Latin America on there as well. So the work is out there, but um, you know, maybe it's just not general appeal. You know what I mean? Although there's some, it's not all documentary, you know, it's it, in, in Oaxaca, it's definitely, took that trajectory. And I think coming out of the ENI, it had that sort of moment where it was created as a documentary f- format, sort of as, it's a, as a reality that had been under 
reflected or misrepresented. And so here it is in documentary form, sort of a truth, a relationship with truth and reestablishing truth. Um, and, but there's some wonderful fictions as well that have come out of this work. It kind of depends on the individual maker. If they sort of have a propensity towards telling stories or to, you know, for documentary making, um, there are film festivals within Mexico that are also, you know, having a lot of success. There's one in Michoacan in Morelia that show, consistently shows um, work by native artists in Mexico. And then you've got Sundance that has sort of a traditional sidebar dedicated to native producers. It's still hard to cross those borders. A lot of times I have a lot of conversations about that, about how given the um, the connections that a lot of Native people have historically as well as culturally, um, North and South, there's still a lot of borders to cross in order to get the work to play, you know, equally up and down. Um, I don't know if that answers your question a little bit. No, I think so. Um, yeah. When you, when you characterize overall uh, indigenous media, um, that you're talking about in these cases, what's coming out of the, the INI and um, being adopted by various indigenous groups, you're describing something which, which as you said, is kind of uneasily and incompletely integrated into the communities in which it's being practiced. And mm-hmm. One reason that it's had a lot of trouble catching on in some cases or becoming fully established, um, especially as video. Whereas you contrast this with the use of video and media more generally by the participants in the Zapatista uprising in the early Mm -hmm. 90s, kind of an ongoing media movement, where media is very much integrated into this kind of revolutionary or, uh, you know, resistance ideal of the group. And could you you tell us a little bit about uh, the Zapatista use of of media in this case? Because I know that's also one of the more well-known examples of indigenous media use in Mexico during this period. Right. Well, well, first, I just want to uh, also um, reinforce or, or not forget to mention that it's just pragmatically a very expensive thing to do. Um, you know, when you're already struggling for basic resources, you know, to make video is kind of crazy, right? When you've got you know, you're waking up at four in the morning to go tend your field and you've got, you know, I mean, just think about your, your, you know, your full life, you know, dedicated to your family, your kids, your community, your field, your, your animals. And then on top of that, trying to make video, it's a lot to ask of anyone. Right. Right. Um, And it's a lot of the, that's why the teachers and, and young people have really been drawn to it um, in general. Right. Cause they sort of have a kind of creative, um, interest in doing that kind of work. Um, but in any case, the, um, I think it's a, it's, well, first of all, you can't have a book about indigenous media in Mexico and not talk about the Chapas media project. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a very successful project. It's very important. I think part of the, um, not so much the, the beginning of the revolution, but the sustained sort of, um, active revolutionary life that folks in Chapas are still living. Um, so that now media is incorporated into the different regions, into the different, um, uh, they're not called caracoles anymore, I'm forgetting that word right now, but in any case, into the regions they have media centers in each of the areas. Um, And it's a project that came in sort of well thought out, 
as part of a revolutionary project. And if you remember from the beginning of the Zapatista movement, when they first sort of became, you know, launched their, their revolution, it, they were very focused on media, right? They took over two radio stations. They were online immediately. Um, and they had a very sort of prolific relationship with international um, media journalists, right? So from the get-go that has been incorporated into their social project, and it just had a much clearer um sort of um, way of using media, the, the, what their project was in, in terms of how media served their project was was very clear. That's not to say that teaching community folks how to use these, these materials didn't have its problems as well. Like uh, Alex Halkin, who was one of the founders, would relate to me that at first a lot of these people didn't think they could use the material because they, all they saw were people with video cameras they always had these big international credentials hanging around their neck. And they thought, well, that's, that's not something, you know, we can use. And so it was, you had to sort of, you know, break down those barriers and say, no, you can buy this camera at a store and anyone can use it. And so, and, and here it is, this is for you, you know, get going. And, um, but it had a very clear directive um, and it was also what I talk about in that chapter is there was a um, a system of social consensus that underpins the Zapatista revolution um, and how they organize civilly in terms of all the, of the sympathizers that today live in you know autonomous municipal areas in Chiapas that didn't necess- didn't have a parallel in in Oaxaca, for example, right? That sort of it's um, emphasis on consensual decision-making wasn't there. And so you weren't involving a community. You weren't part of a rotating system of authorities that had the video camera. There were more sort of individuals that expressed an interest in it. So I think this, the, the system that the Chappas Media Project used was based on this social consensual decision-making process that had a, has had a lot more success. And they, they're also very dependent on the U.S. counterpart, right? It's right. always been conceived as a binational project. Um, and that's a lot of times where the funding comes from as well as, well as a, a distribution. And that's not something that's going to go away. That's part of part of the project. They're less dependent on it now, I think, than they were in the first you know 10 years or so. But it's still part of the project. So normally um, in these... Uh New Books Network podcast, we'd ask you what you're doing next as our, our last subject. But it's quite clear that this is an ongoing story that some of these groups, while they may not be producing video as much as they used to be, are still producing video and are still interested in media production more generally, and that you've been continuing to look into this. So I want to ask, first off, what is the current state or the state of uh, indigenous video, indigenous media going into the 21st century? Well, it, um, it might not be, at least in Mexico, there might not be as many different communities producing, but there are still pockets of very robust production. Um, and some of the folks that were trained sort of in the beginning of the 90s are still growing as, as artists and as video makers. Um, and, and some of their work is, is going more mainstream, for example. Um, and then you've got Ojo de Agua, which is still going strong. They've um, moved into some television production for, um, you know, national television production, which I think is a, is really great because they've been able to maintain this quality of indigenous video that repairs that, that 
fissure, I call it, between the expressive parts of culture and the sociopolitical parts of culture. So folks, you know, watching television will learn that this this group in, I don't know, Guerrero, Mexico, um, that they might only know through their through their craft because they recognize that particular craft. Um, actually, that the clay that that craft is made from is in an area that's about to be flooded by a hydroelectric dam project, and they would be they'd be ruined because not just because they won't make the craft, but because their ancestors are buried there. You know, so it just really takes on this is able to deliver this understanding of indigenous people as alive, as present, as protagonists in their own lives, as a control over their own resources. Um, and they were able, in fact, to stave off the building of the dam um, for a number of years, not just because of this program, but so they've moved into television production. Um, but, and, and for example, in Tama, in, um, the Tamix guys, while they're really not producing, I mean, they do radio one of the guys does a lot of local music uh, work. He's sort of a band manager and um, goes to lots of regional festivals, mostly for music. Um, and they're not doing much video production, but they have this archive, as I was saying, and they are in really interested in digitizing it because it's literally perishing. It's, you know, a lot of the analog tapes are, are getting moldy. They're just, you know, they're, they're, destroying and getting destroyed in poor uh, storage conditions. Um, and, but they don't want to see it disappear. Um, and at the same time, they want to give it over. It's like, you know, this, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to our community. So they're looking for a way to start playing it again, to start screening it again. And they've created this wonderful documentary about their, their work. And they're really looking for a way to say, you know, here's, here's our archive. You know, this belongs to the, to the community. Um, I think enough time has passed since 2000 when they had that very sort of tumultuous year and the community sort of rejected them um, where they can come back around and say, hey, look, you know, we're not necessarily who we were as an organization, but what are we going to do with this treasure that we have? And they've kept it. They've built, you know, cabinets for it. They store it in a particular location. They try and keep it clean. But, you know, we're talking about the mountain communities that have very, you know, harsh climate sometimes, and these are not optimal preservation conditions for any material like that. So that's why, um, you know, it's, it's really great for me that I began this archive project, and they also began their own digitization project. Now we're working together, and so they are providing pilot material for the archive. And the archive is... Um, the idea of it is to have an online living um, archive that people can access, sort of the primary constituents being the Native communities themselves, because like I was saying earlier, sometimes they don't have access to this material, and I think it would be great to have access for the local school systems to you know, go. I mean, they're all connected now. Sometimes they're... Um, their access to the internet is not as robust as, you know, in other places, but by and large, they're all connected. I mean, I Facebook with, you know, the kids of all these guys pretty frequently. Um, and so to have this material online, I think would be a great resource for the community and for all of us. Right. And so, um, the idea is to preserve and conserve the stuff that was created in the nineteens and then 1990s, as well as sort of begin to, you know, create a space where new material can be uploaded, new fresh interviews can be, can add sort of metadata and contextualization for the material. And then it can be kind of a, a mapping of this extensive social network of media producers that are connected in Latin America that meet at these film festivals, but, you know, work year round. 
um, a place for them to deposit material. So that's that's what I've been working on um, lately. Right. And uh, are you moving forward with any research on Indigenous radio, different subjects? Um, where are you looking for, uh, I guess, for your next book? Yeah, well, I think that the, the work with the archive might produce some ideas for the next book because it's going to be a lot more about um, sort of the digital environments in these communities. But but this curiosity that I've had about the, the comparative relationship between radio and video is something that I want to develop uh, into a book. And also, I think it will allow me, uh, give me a way to begin to look at women's roles in video production in particular. It's something that I didn't do much in the book at all and I, and I think needs to be done. Um, and radio has been much more participatory in that sense. And I think women find themselves more attracted to it. And so I want to understand that. And, and what is it about the technology? What is it about the visual, you know, versus the oral? Um, and also uh, just to look at the different developments of the two, me- the two media in, these, in this context in Mexico. So I, and that would require new research to go down and, and really sort of dig in at the, the radio stations. There's a lot. Radio has experienced a, a big resurgence in Oaxaca in particular after the 2006 social uprising, a lot of communities felt the urgency to have their own radio station to be able to communicate with each other. And it's considered an old technology, right? But it's it's totally one of the most popular ones. So I think it needs to be looked at with the same kind of sort of complexity that I tried to look at video. So those two things kind of is what, is what, I've, what I'm working on now. Well, I think that's uh, all we have time for today. Um, Erica, it's been great talking to you, and good luck with your your current work. Thank you. All right.